All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks that we get to sit at your feet and hear your word. And Lord, we just pray that your spirit would speak to us in ways that are so wonderful that we wouldn't even try to explain it away for any reason other than we're reading your word, being taught by your spirit. And so, Lord, please do that work in our hearts today. Do what needs to be done in each and every one of us, please, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 44. Today we read uh, 44 through 46. I'll just give you a little warning. These, um, these chapters seem like they're um, a little bit fragmented and unrelated. We've talked in the past that Jeremiah doesn't always speak chronologically um, or write chronologically, um, and so this is a good example. So anyway, the f- chapter 44 we're spending, we're, is where we're going to spend most of our time today, uh, and I tell you that because uh, I know how you are. You get to the end of, I get to the end of 44 and you say, he said he's doing two more chapters, and it's like, We've been here for this long. So 45 we'll talk about briefly, and 46 really is just like a, a almost like a poem about Egypt, and we're going to just read through that um, real quickly. And so that's the overview. Uh, the big picture to small picture, right? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Everything was good for two chapters. And then Genesis chapter 3, sin came into the world, and ever since, God has been uh, redeeming mankind from from man's sin problem. And we know that redemption comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're studying his family, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, his family uh, history uh, teaches us a lot in the way God has dealt with his family, as, as well as the way God deals with uh, human beings in general, and uh, so that takes us to this section of Jeremiah. Um, really the end of an era when God has been dealing with his people, dealing with his people, dealing with his people ever since they entered into the promised land, and um, uh, just last week we read about the final destruction of Jerusalem um, in the southern kingdom of Judah there in 586 B.C. at the hand of the Babylonians. And so, just to review a little bit more from last week, you know, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and they, not, they, they basically obliterated Jerusalem, they left a little bit of a remnant of people and, you know, and they appointed a governor. And then, you know, a guy gets sent over from the Ammonites. And I mean, this is so often how you can imagine, right? Jerusalem gets wiped out. There's no more, basically, there's no more Jewish nation to speak of. They've, uh, the remnants have been carried off to Babylon as, as slaves. And so there's all that. So what do you see? You see sort of the neighboring nations decide hey, we could just kind of go in and take that land. We could kind of pick off their people. We could have all kinds of, of chaos and be a part of it. And that's, that's essentially what happened. The Ammonites sent in uh, a thug by the name of Ishmael to kill the, uh, the governor of the land that was appointed by the king of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the governor was Gedaliah. The thug was Ishmael. Ishmael kills Gedaliah. They, then he runs and they scatter. And it's all a big mess, right? And... Um, so that was last week, summarized in, it was all a big mess. 
right? And then uh, the people come gen- uh, acting all sincere to Jeremiah. Hey, what should we do now? And Jeremiah says, sit tight. God's going to bless you if you just surrender to him, submit to him for once, and do what he says. But I'll tell you what, don't do. Don't go to Egypt. And the people promptly said, all right, we hear what you say. We're on our way to Egypt, right? They go to Egypt. They drag uh, uh, Jeremiah with them. And we find ourselves now picking up the story in Egypt. And as we read through these chapters today, I want us to consider this. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to drive this point home. Egypt is a picture throughout the Bible of the world. Everything the world has to offer. The world system, the world security, the world uh, safety, the world, um, you know, I can solve my problems by um, working out a man-made solution with the world systems and the world's markets and the world's, uh, you know, strength and all of that. That's sort of, uh, Egypt is somewhat of a picture of that. And throughout the Bible, Egypt is always where you go if you need, man, if you need uh, sort of security on a human level, right? Even as far back as Abraham, right? There's a famine in the land. Where does Abraham go? He goes to Egypt, right? Uh, picks up Hagar while he's down there, and that's another big mess, right? But so often, Egypt is a picture of what the world has to offer, and that's clearly uh, how it's, how it's uh, represented here. And so um, be very careful about that. Be very careful about trusting uh, the world to overcome our fears and our desire for security and all of that. But anyway, so we're in Egypt now. And verse four, chapter 44, the word of the Lord, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdal, at Taphanes, at Noph, and in the country of Pathros, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah, and behold, this day they are a desolation. And no one dwells in them because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know, they nor you nor your fathers. And so this is, a, this is basically a summary statement from God, right, to these people that have now fled to Egypt for safety and security. You know, they're, they're afraid of the Babylonians, so they're trying to run a little bit farther away, and um, they're going to they're gonna look to, the, to Egypt for security. Most commentators say this is written about 580 B.C., which would be roughly six years after uh, the fall of Jerusalem. I want you to notice here, if you would, in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And he repeats uh, in verse 7 that he's the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. But I want you to just consider this for a minute. Lord of hosts. Hosts means the angelic world. I was talking to somebody earlier uh, before, before church this morning. Said that, um, you know, have you seen this show like Alien? I won't embarrass her, but Alien something rather. And I was like, no. I haven't seen that show Alien something or other. Right? And our world is kind of fascinated with like, the stuff that's out there, you know, everything from Bigfoot to aliens, right? And we all know the truth about Bigfoot, but I'm not going to tell you that so as to not distract us. But the Lord is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the angelic world. 
if we're surrendered to him and submitted to him, that should be a great comfort to us. What that means is the angelic world is on our side. They fight for us. We see specific examples in the book of, of Daniel and elsewhere where the angels are fighting on behalf of God's children. And we see in Ephesians, right, chapter 6, that there's all kinds of warfare out there that we don't, we don't see with our eyes. But our God is the Lord of hosts. He takes care of us on multiple levels. He's also, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He's the God of his, of his people, of the Jewish people. He's the God of us individually. And so all the way down from the heavenly host to, to you individually, God is God. God is God. And on one hand, that means you can't escape him, right? Thank you for teaching us that, Jonah. You can't escape God. But on the other hand, we should find it tremendously comforting, right? David, Psalm 139, right? Where can I go from your presence? I don't want to go anyone from your presence. And I, t- and I take that very, uh, I, I, I take great comfort in that. And so God's the Lord of hosts. He's the God of Israel. Notice that he also points out that all the calamity that they've seen in Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah predicted this for 40 years. And finally, finally, they kept saying, no, you're full of hot air, you're full of hot air, you're full of hot air. Finally, it comes to pass. And so God's just reminding them, by the way, you saw all that I did in Jerusalem. And then he tells them why. This is perhaps the most important part of these first few verses. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Jerusalem and Judah is a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of their wickedness. Because of their wickedness. Judah is now destroyed because of the wickedness of the people that live there. Not because of their geographical location, right? So you see the idea? The people here, this sort of haphazard remnant of people that were left in the land, they think, they act like the problem is they're not far away enough from Babylon. They now, if they're in a different location, they're going to be good. But the problem was not their location. The problem was they were wicked, right? So if I'm wicked in place A and God brings punishment, is the solution for me to then go to place B? What's going to happen in place B? What's God going to bring? Punishment. Same thing he brought in place A. And that's the point of this chapter, right? What's the solution to sin? Repentance. What was the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth when he came on the scene? Repent. Repent. And repentance is the solution to our sin problem. Jesus made it all available, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's all available to us, but we have to repent. We have to repent of our sins. These folks never repented. And it's a sad statement. But being in Egypt doesn't change their wickedness, and it's not going to change their risk of destruction. Verse 4, however, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they are wasted and desolate as it is this day. So God further elaborates here, and he makes the point, he was faithful to warn the people. 
You know, God always warns his people before he brings his wrath, before he brings his destruction. And he continues to do that even today in his word. No one can ever blame God for not being warned of the judgment to come. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God reveals himself to all creatures so that men are without excuse. And so God always warns his people. Now, therefore, verse 7, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts. Again, he talks about that. The God of hosts, the God of Israel. Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves? To cut off from you man and woman, child and infant, out of Judah, leaving none to remain, in that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among the, all the nations of the earth. And so, they're going to Egypt, but they're not changing their ways. They're still burning incense to other gods. What's the first of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They were burning incense to other gods while at the same time, and this is, this is, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, while at the same time they're claiming to be followers of Yahweh God. Right? We're followers of God the Bible, but we also burn incense to this God and that God and, and the Queen of Heaven we'll read about here in a little bit and, and different things. Do you see this point for us? Would we call ourselves Christians by and large? I mean, we'd call ourselves Christians, Right? We'd say, I'm, follow, I'm the follower of the God of the Bible. So we've got to be super careful that we don't, that we, in our, in our own lives, and honestly, this, this requires, I believe, a lot of introspection, right? Because I think it's very possible for us to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a believer of the God of the Bible, but boy, I sure do like this thing over here. Right, And it may not be uh, a Baal that we put on our fireplace and bow down to it or a statue of Buddha or anything like that, but it might be on our own little God, our own little idol, right? Our own little thing that, you know, it's not really like a religion, but it might be something that we put in a higher priority than our love of God, in which case we'd call it an idol, Right? Idolatry for the Christian does not work. I believe it's super subtle, even today, and I believe it's super dangerous. We all have our potential idols that we need to sort of be on guard about. And if, um, if these things consume our thinking, if they consume our devotion more than our love of God, then we're... Um, then we're just, in, 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 we're just in a place we don't want to be, okay? We're in a place we don't want to be. And notice here he says, I, I like this, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 7, Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves? You know, failing to obey God brings consequences upon ourselves. Can I tell you this? Can I tell you this? Just as, a, just as, a, as, as gracious as I can say it, as gracious as I can say it, having a half-hearted love of God and a more than half-hearted love of something else is a sin against ourselves. Not just against the Lord, but against ourselves. Why is it against, against ourselves? Because it brings consequence. There's a principle of sowing and reaping, right? 
Paul tells the Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he's going to reap. If he sows to the flesh, he reaps corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he'll reap eternal life. And so as we serve the Lord, as we call ourselves Christians, if we fall into uh, idolatry in any way, it really brings harm on ourselves. And uh, we see that all around us. And again, it's a warning for us. Notice also, he says here at the end in verse uh, 8, why do you do all this stuff so that it brings on a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth? You know, one of the things that we need to realize is that we as Christians, if we wear the name Christian publicly, then we're ambassadors of God, right? I believe Second Corinthians tells us that we're ambassadors for Christ. We represent Him. We represent Him. And we don't want to misrepresent Him, right? If I'm obsessed with my own little thing, if I call myself a Christian and I also have this, you know, this idolatry going, right? And I bring uh, reproach upon myself and I bring consequence upon myself by doing so and, I'm, and I got this double life thing going and it's a big mess and, and there's no victory in it and I'm always uh, just a victim of my circumstance and my consequences and all this. How do I represent God, right? Now we can take that too far. We could say, you know, if you, if you just come to Jesus, everything's going to be awesome and you're going to live in victory and there's never going to be challenge and there's never going to be that. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about challenge. I'm talking about consequence. I'm talking about sowing and reaping, right? So we don't necessarily, uh, you know, I don't think the Bible teaches necessarily a prosperity gospel, right? That if you serve the Lord, everything's going to be hunky-dory. But there is another, and sometimes, sometimes we're so uh, deliberate not to, you know, to say we don't preach a prosperity gospel. Sometimes we're so deliberate with that that we sort of forget the other side a little bit. And the other side is, you know, living according to the scripture works. I love my wife always says, the Bible works. The Bible works. Can I tell you this? The Bible works. Does it mean I have pie in the sky until I die? No, but I can just tell you this having logged a few decades, the Bible works. And let me tell you this, neglecting the Bible as a Christian does not work. You feel like you're spinning your wheels? Ask yourself, am I neglecting the Bible as a Christian? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You'll find all kinds of chaos. You'll find all kinds of of endless frustration. You'll find yourself feeling like a hamster on a wheel. I had a hamster as a kid, a couple of them. Maybe the Lord wanted me to remember that picture in my mind. That thing around on a wheel, 100 miles an hour. You ever seen this? 100 miles an hour. Never accomplished anything. Nothing, right? And then one day, hamster's gone, right? There's a funny smell in the closet. Three weeks later, you find the hamster, right? What did it accomplish? Nothing. Just made, made the closet stink, right? Living the Christian life apart from the Word of God 
is like the hamster on a wheel and you will get nowhere. You'll get frustrated. Now, again, if you are living according to the word and you find hard times, yep. And I, honestly, and again, I've logged a few, a few decades, start to say a few centuries, feels like it. I've logged a few decades. I have seen people who live according to the word. And guess what? They have challenge. But I can tell you this, as a pastor, as a physician, I can tell you this, they handle challenge differently than these people do. Have you noticed this? I see this all the time. These people handle challenge differently than these people do. And if we live as Christians according to the word, you know what? We're going to have challenge. Matthew chapter 7. Wise man builds his house on the rock. Guess what? The rain still comes. Foolish man builds his house on the sand. The same rain comes. But somehow, he just falls apart. Right? I've seen it happen way too many times. My, my prayer for each and every one of us today, in the sound of my voice, is that we would learn how to live on the rock. And Jesus himself said, he who hears my words and does them. It's not rocket science. He who hears my words and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the word. He'll be like a tree planted by the water. He's going to be solid. He's not going to fall apart when the rains come. It's such a principle. And now you have these people who watched Jeremiah for 40 years predict this is going to happen. And lo and behold, this happens. Wow, that was incredible. The decimation of Jerusalem. I know what we need to do. We need to run to Egypt. Are you kidding me? But don't we do that so often? We do that so often. And when we do that, we bring a great evil against ourselves and we bring a reproach to God. We don't want to misrepresent God. Verse 9, have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers? The wickedness of the kings of Judah? The wickedness of their wives? What do you think is the problem in these people? The wicked, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, I'm sorry, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, they have not been humbled to this day, nor have they feared. They have not walked in my law or in my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. Can I tell you this? He says, have you forgotten the wickedness? Remembrance is a good thing. Wickedness here is mentioned five times in this verse. Why? Because we should learn from it. We should learn from it. Remembrance is a good thing. We should remember the goodness of God, and we should remember the consequence of walking contrary to his word. I can tell you times when I walked contrary to the word of God, I remember it. I remember it enough to walk away from it. Verse 11, he goes on, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Again, that's the third time. Behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe and for cutting off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and the famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest by the sword and the famine, and they shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. 
Now, those of you who've been here, you've listened to 43 chapters of this stuff over the last, I don't know, six months, right? Does, have we heard this before, <laughs> right? This is deja vu. Hey, everything that I said was going to happen in Jerusalem is now going to happen in Egypt. It's just going to happen all over again. Why? Because the solution hasn't happened, and that is you haven't repented. You haven't repented. This is deja vu. The destruction in Egypt is just going to be like the destruction in Jerusalem was. And even these people, they had the opportunity to see Jeremiah's prophecy come true the first time. And they're still rejecting the word of the Lord. Amazing. You know, the human heart, Jeremiah says it in an earlier chapter, I believe 17. The human heart is capable of tremendous deception. Can I tell you this? The human heart is capable of tremendous deception. If there's one thing that I'm afraid of in this life, and I think a godly fear, I hope a godly fear, I'm afraid of my own, the wickedness of my own heart. I'm afraid of the wickedness of my own heart. I've been listening to a podcast recently about a guy, a pastor, who uh, I think had a self, self-focused heart. It was, you know, started out with good intentions like so many people do. Next thing you know, the ministry's all about him, all about him, all about him, all about him. It's all about money. It's all about numbers, right? And the guy crashed. And Nate, <laughs> Nate listened to it for you know, about... 12 seconds. <laughs> He's like, why do you keep listening to that? And it's because I'm, I'm afraid of my own heart. I want to learn. I want to learn from everybody that crashes. What is it? How do you guard against that? I'm afraid of my own desire for security. My own capacity to be covetous. My own capacity to be self-indulgent. We should have a healthy fear of those things. And we should do whatever we can to guard against those things. We should do whatever we can to guard against those things. These people are so thick-headed that they watched the fall of Jerusalem They bailed to Egypt. God in His grace and His mercy sends Jeremiah to Egypt with them to say, it's going to happen again. And they don't get it. Is the human heart thick-headed? You bet it is. Be careful about the human heart. Be careful. Verse 14, So that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell for none shall return except those who escape. So here's even a picture of God's grace. The warning is for those of you who don't escape and go back to Judah, this is going to happen. This destruction's coming. By the way, what's that tell me? That an escape and a go back to Judah is option is an option. And so God uh, presents that as an option. Verse 15, then he kind of changed gears here a little bit. Then all the men 
who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the Lord that you have spoken, as for the word you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, you like this? We will not listen to you. Right? Now, you know, Tracy and I have had young kids for a couple of, well, a few decades. That does feel like a few centuries. Uh, but anyway. And, and, you know, when our kids were little, you know, there's a time when you tell the kid, you know, um, you know, don't put your hand in the cookie jar. And, you know, they kind of put their hand in the cookie jar. And then you have this whole, like, so much of parenting is like, you know, trying to be a, a, a jury, right? And, well, maybe he didn't hear me. And, you know, maybe his hand just kind of fell over that way. And maybe he was, like, about ready to die of starvation, as he claims. And, you know, there could have been a lot of, there could have been a lot of variables in that scenario, right? But I remember when our kids, when our younger kids were young, when our older kids were young, every once in a while, some more than others, you figure out who, some more than others would say something to the effect of, hey, as for the word of the Lord, which you've spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, right? That's in your face. Is that not in your face? That's in your face. This is amazing. And again, even considering all that they've seen. Now, I want to point out also that here we see sort of the men and women uh, kind of uh, identified specifically. Notice that? Did you notice that? Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude and all the people, they're the ones that said, yeah, we're not going to listen to you. So you see what happens here? The men knew that their wives had burned incense, and all the women are hanging around. So it seems that the women are kind of driving this ship of rebellion. Is that fair? Ladies, is that fair? You give me that? And what are the men doing? They were golfing, right? They're golfing and fishing, chilling, riding the tractor. Right? You have to crank a tractor up long enough, loud enough, you can't hear anybody talk. You ever notice that? You just drive like um, Mr. Douglas, the tractor. Turn, you know, you crank up the throttle real loud and can't hear anybody complain or talk. Anything like that. Right? They're just out of touch. The men are out of touch and the women are kind of driving this ship. Now, you know, some of you are like, oh, okay, I'm glad he's going to finally get around to that, you know, men, are, men need to wear the pants in the house kind of uh, talk and you know, some of you guys like that kind of talk. Let me tell you one of my favorite, favorite man, husband, wife uh, passages. There's several of them, but this is one I like. A husband is an authority in the home. Is that okay? A lot of deep voices all resonate. Yes. <laughs> husbands, uh, husbands of authority in the home. Is that okay? 
All right? There are authority structures on earth. Is that okay? There's an authority in the home. There's an authority in the church. There's an authority in the workplace. That all, it is what it is. Is that okay? Men, this is how you handle authority. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort. So he's talking about elders in a church. But I think it applies to any authority, if you'll give me this. The elders who are among you, I exhort I, who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Shepherd. Shepherd. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Examples to the flock. That, and when the the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And so what you have here is these women burning incense to other gods. The men know about it, and the men are silent. And let me just say this. This is a pattern that remains to this day. Men desperately need to shepherd the flock of their home. Desperately. Desperately. I can't say enough about that. So in this case, men and women are both guilty. Men and women, you know, the, the, the different roles shouldn't be weird or shouldn't be uh, adversarial or shouldn't be competitive in any way. They should be complementary. A husband and wife in a healthy marriage should enhance the spiritual life of one another. A healthy marriage should be one in which the husband helps the wife in her discipleship and the wife helps the husband in his discipleship. It should go that way. It should go that way. So these, these families are all messed up. The women are burning incense. The husbands don't care. They're, they're blowing off their, their obligations. And these guys don't remember what happened in Jerusalem and what Jeremiah was predicting for 40 years prior. You know, sin makes you what? <clears throat> we said this before. Sin makes you what? Stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Sin also makes you forget history, right? Remember, again, we're talking about Egypt. Remember when the Israelites came out of the desert? We talked about this, I believe, last week. When the Israelites, I'm sorry, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they're in the desert, right? And all of a sudden they get hungry or they get thirsty or they want this and they say, what do they say? Man, we remember how awesome life was back in Egypt when we ate leeks and onions and and everything was fantastic. We had such freedom, right? They were slaves in bondage, crying for help, right? Sin makes you stupid. Thank you, Samson, for teaching us that. Sin also makes you fuzzy on the details of history. And these people are forgetting what happened just a few years prior in Jerusalem. So verse, seven, verse 
17, he goes on, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth. This, these are the, the women talking again. We will certainly do, I'm sorry, these are the men who knew that the women were doing this. We will certainly do whatever has gone out of our mouths, our, our own mouth, to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then, you know, way back then when we were burning incense to the queen of heaven, back in Jerusalem. That's when we had plenty of food. We were well off. We saw no trouble. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything. We've been consumed by the, word, by the sword and the famine. So some historians say, you know, when they stopped doing that was during the reign of Josiah, and these people sort of misinterpreted it as, you know, that's when everything uh, fell apart. Can I just tell you this? This is what happens when we start to discern life according to our circumstances. Because it may be that you're totally walking away from the Lord, and God in his mercy just happens to have not brought judgment yet, because he's given you an opportunity to repent. And so when, you know, it gets really fuzzy. If you're, if you're evaluating life only by your circumstances, it gets really fuzzy what causes what. Does that make sense? Now, you've heard my favorite story on this. Some of you have. If you have, just think of this as a life principle. If you've not heard this, think of it as the best joke you've ever heard in your life. Okay? Scientists is, is doing an experiment with frogs, right? Raise your hand if you know this story. All right, so that's okay. It'll be really fresh for the rest of you. Scientists do an experiment with frogs. He's got a frog on a table. He's got his little log book, his long uh, white coat, which serves no purpose. But anyway, makes him look scientific. So he's, he's got his frog, and he says, jump frog. Jump, frog jumps nine feet. He writes down his little log book. Frog with four legs jumps nine feet. Cuts off a leg, says jump frog. Frog jumps seven feet high. No, frog with three legs jumps seven feet. Cuts off another leg. Jump frog. Hmm. Frog with two legs jumps five feet. Cuts off the third leg. Says jump frog. Hmm. Frog with one leg can only jump three feet. Cuts off the fourth leg of the frog. He says, jump frog. Jump frog. Frog just sits there. He's got no legs. Writes down his log book. Frog with no legs can't hear. Right? That's a stupid joke. Right? But it's a life principle. It's a life principle. Much of modern day science goes that way. I'll just tell you straight up. Much of modern day observational science goes that way. I can tell you specifics that I won't go into for the sake of time. But I, I, can, I can read these things. I can, I can read these things and say, and, and say, yep, we got this, this, and this data point, therefore this is the obvious conclusion, and it's like a frog with no legs can't hear. These guys, you know, back when we were serving the Queen of Heaven, burning incense to her and offering cakes and everything else to all this pagan deities. Everything was going awesome. And then we start serving the Lord, which, did they ever serve the Lord? No, they never served the Lord. We start serving the Lord and everything falls apart, right? The frog with no legs can't hear. Do not evaluate life situations, good and bad, according to circumstances. Evaluate them according to the Word of God. 
Evaluate them according to the Word of God. God's ways are higher than our ways, so we won't always be mindful of what He's doing or aware of what He's doing in a particular situation. He may be merciful during our rebellion just because He's long-suffering. That doesn't mean we're blessed by our rebellion. Verse 19, the women also said, And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? So again, you know, these, these women are highlighting the fact that, uh, that their husbands were aware of it and they were fine with it. And so, you know, there you go. It was an endorsement from the husbands. Can I tell you, men, again, while I'm on this subject, it takes some work to be a diligent shepherd of your home. It takes some work. It's not always fun to be a diligent shepherd of your home. It does take work. But it's what we signed up for. It's what we signed up for. Verse 20. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the people. The men, the women, and all the people who had given him that answer, saying, The incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings, and your princes, and the people of the land, did not, did not the Lord remember them? And did it not come into his mind? So the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse, and without inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes, or in his testimonies, therefore this calamity has happened to you as at this day." Why has this calamity happened? Jeremiah is just bringing back clarity. He's just reiterating the clarity of God. Jerusalem is destroyed because of your sin. And your recollection of the details is incorrect. It's because you burned incense. It's because you sinned against the Lord. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, Hear the word of the Lord. All Judah, who are in the land of Egypt, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. And so notice here, Jeremiah is specifically instructing these women because their husbands haven't done their job to, to do so. So Jeremiah is doing that. And notice the message. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Not your feelings, not your circumstances, not your perceptions of historical details, not your perceptions of security, but hear the word of the Lord. And the message for us today is to hear the word of the Lord and do it and to live accordingly. Verse 26, therefore hear the word of the Lord. All Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt, behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah and in all the land of Egypt, saying, the Lord God lives. Now, here's an important point. Again, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, there's a thing when we call ourselves Christians, that brings on a, a higher standard. When we call ourselves Christians and then worship the queen of heaven or our entertainment or our recreation or our selfishness. When we do that, we're, again, discrediting the Lord. 
It's one thing for a pagan culture to dishonor God. It's another thing altogether for God's people, the Jewish people, to dishonor God. And that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. You remember when Jesus walked the earth? It's almost like he had three categories of people in his mind. There's a certain way he dealt with his disciples, we'll say. Okay? His disciples, he always kind of like, he loved them. You know, John says he loved them to the end, right? He loved them. He nurtured them. He taught them. When they were boneheads, he still kind of taught them, right? And they gave him plenty of opportunity because they were boneheads quite a bit. And he still kind of taught them and he kind of nurtured them along and he kind of did that, right? That's how he did with, the, with those that believed in him. And then there were, there were ways he dealt with, like, we'll say the woman at the well, right? A just full-blown 100% sinner, right? No other word you could use to describe that woman except sinner. How did Jesus deal with her? Super gracious, right? Just, just super graciously reeled her in, right? Just a beautiful story, right? And then there were people that called themselves God-followers and yet wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus. How did Jesus deal with them? Oh, well, he called them brood of vipers. He said the word woe a lot. Right? He called them out. So much so that they killed him. Right? I think there's a principle there. Right? God deals with sinners with amazing grace and mercy. God deals with us with amazing grace and mercy. But there's that, there's that person that claims to be a God follower that really his life has nothing to do with God. That person is a, is, is a little bit high risk. Paul gives a, a, an account of it to the Corinthians because there was a lot of this going on in the, in the Corinthian church. Paul says to the Corinthians, chapter 5, he said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or, by the way, with covetous or extortioners, idolaters, right? If he told us, hey, don't hang out with anybody who's immoral or covetous, right? Like, let's say God came to, uh, came to us today and said, I don't want you to hang out with any covetous people. Where would you go? <laughs> right? You have to crawl in a hole. Paul's, Paul goes on, he says, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. Right? Those are harsh words. But what Paul is saying, and what I believe God is saying is, you know, when you, when you call yourself a God follower, one of his people, one of his children, and you worship the queen of heaven, you, you, you discredit me so much that I'm going to call you a brood of vipers. We've got to be super careful about that. I don't ever want to misrepresent God. Verse 27. 
Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Yet a small number who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah who have not gone to the land of Egypt, I'm sorry, who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know those whose words will stand, mine or theirs. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. God's words will stand, period. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, just as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. So there you go. Um, the same thing's going to happen in, in Egypt that happened in Jerusalem. Briefly, chapter 45. This, so anyway, this end of chapter 44 are the last historical words that uh, Jeremiah would have written. Um, and now uh, he goes back a little bit to, um, to sort of a, a postscript, if you will, um, to Baruch. And Baruch, as you know, was, was um, Jeremiah's uh, assistant, Jeremiah's scribe. Uh, he says, The word that the, Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So the fourth year of Jehoiakim, you remember, uh, was before the reign of Zedekiah. So we're going past, past tense now. The son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying. And so this would have coincided with chapter 36. We talked about this. Uh, Jeremiah, God told, you may recall, God told Jeremiah, hey, write down everything I've told you so far. And uh, he has Baruch write it down. And Baruch writes it down. He reads it to some of the leaders. And they say, wow, this is, these are heavy words. We need to take these to the king. Uh, they take it to King uh, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim listens to three or four lines of, of this. And what's he do? He throws it in the fire, right? And so Baruch goes and has to uh, write another copy uh, at Jer Jeremiah's dictation. But this, this takes place in that time. And, um, and I believe this is placed here as an encouragement to show the contrast between the events of chapter 44 and chapter 45. And I believe it applies. You know, Baruch, you ever hear much about Baruch in Bible history? No. No. He's kind of a low-profile guy. He's kind of a low-profile guy. What's interesting is um, Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah chapter um, fifty-one tells us that Baruch's family, Baruch's brother, was actually in the inner circle of Zedekiah. So Baruch was kind of like from a royal family. And so you got to picture the context, right? Who's the most isolated person in, in Judah in these days? Jeremiah, right? I mean, they're throwing him in prison and all kinds of stuff. He's, he's taking the heat, right? Well, by association, Baruch decides not to hang out so much with, you know, his brother in the king's court. And, you know, he could have had a pretty royal position, but he finds himself uh, hanging out with Jeremiah, and uh, life was kind of hard for him. So this is what the Lord says to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to you, O Baruch, you said, woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. So somewhere along the way, Baruch was a faithful guy, but he's finding himself a little bit whiny. 
You ever found yourself a little bit whiny as a Christian? You ever whiny as a Christian? Right? It, sound, it sounds different ways, right? You have a different sort of some whine, hmm, some whine, hmm. It's kind of like a, you can harmonize with your, with your whining, right? But we all whine in our own different way, right? Baruch, at one point, had been, had been a little bit of a whiner. And I want you to notice this also. Here's what else Baruch had said. For the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. You ever blame God for your circumstances? You ever heard anybody say, I'm what? Mad at God, right? I'm mad at God. Well, that's a person that's looking at the circumstances like we talked about, hey, when we worshiped the Queen of Heaven, everything was fine, right? If you're looking at your circumstances and you're somehow mad at God as a result of those circumstances, that's a misinterpretation because God is nothing but good and gracious. Does God let us go through things because life is hard? Yes, He does. Do we sometimes bring stuff on ourselves because there's consequences of sin? Yes, we do. Does that take away from the goodness of God in any way, shape, or form? No, it doesn't. And so Baruch, he had a hard life. He could have had a, what well, he thinks he could have had, probably a more uh, soft and cushy life. Uh, but he finds himself in a little bit of a, of a whining position and, and, and sort of blaming God for it. But even as we say that, if it's any encouragement, Baruch goes down as a pretty faithful, cool guy. Verse 4, Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I will break down, and what I have planted I will pluck up. That is, this whole land. And so, God's ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah 55 tells us. God's ways are higher than our ways. We won't always understand what God is doing and when and how and all that, but we just, if we just trust in Him, He'll be faithful. And do you seek, verse 5, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places, wherever you go. There's some of the best advice in Scripture right there. Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Do not seek them. This guy could have sought great things for himself. Again, he's, part, he's in a royal family. He could have sought great things for himself. God tells him, don't seek them. And I will give your life to you as a prize. We won't read chapter 46, but let me just tell you this. When God says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do we want great things for ourselves? Sure we do. Do we like comfort? Sure. Do we want to be healthy? Sure. Do we want people to say you're awesome? Sure. All those things, right? But we're told, don't seek those things. Don't seek those things. What did Jesus tell us? If you want to, lose your, if you want to find your life, lose it. For my sake. For my sake. These are great words. These are great words. Do you seek great things for your life? Do not seek them. Because, he says, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places, wherever you go. 
The paradox is, if we let God work out what's best for us without selfish ambition, the paradox is he blesses us in ways that we could have never anticipated. And let me tell you, I've been alive a few decades enough to see that as well in my life and others. You surrender to God, you let him work out the details. You, you, you maybe even have an opportunity for selfish ambition, for self-promotion, for self-exaltation. Maybe even have a little opportunity for that. And you pause on it and kind of take a step back and let God work out the circumstances. Can I tell you, God will give his life as a prize. Give that person a life as a prize. God will bless us above and beyond all, all we could ask or think. Ephesians chapter 3. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1. Right? Does God want what's best for us? Yeah, he does. Now, do we want what's best for us? Yeah, we do. Who knows better? God does. So he gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. We follow him. And that doesn't mean that life is necessarily easy. But it's better than running to Egypt for help. It's better than running to Egypt for security. And even during times that we feel discouraged like Baruch, please remember God sees a bigger picture. God loves you. God loves you. And God wants what's best for each and every one of us. And what's best for us is to follow his word faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good to us. Lord, we thank you that you guide us and lead us in ways that we can't do or wouldn't even have the insight to do. But Lord, we know that in our flesh dwells no good thing. And so we ask, Lord, that you would just pick us up and carry us. Cause us to follow after you wholeheartedly. that we can appreciate your blessings as you define them. Thanks for your goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.